Listeners of the Elevate podcast know we frequently discuss the qualities of strong leaders. And one of the most important qualities for sure is effective communication, especially with clients and customers. That's why I highly recommend Economist Education's new course on business writing and storytelling. This interactive online program was designed by senior editors from The Economist, a leading source of independent journalism known and respected for its writing style. Economist Education provides online executive education courses building on the expertise and analytical rigor of The Economist. These courses are two to six week online programs designed to empower business professionals like you to thrive in a changing world and workplace. And they come with a three month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning. Economist Education has a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer for you to get started. Get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to my exclusive URL, education.economist.com elevate, and enter my promo code elevate at registration. This offer ends March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go to education.economist.com elevate and use promo code ELEVATE at registration. Burnout may not come because we're working too hard. We're being asked to hustle and contribute too much. What I see is that burnout tends to come because we lack impact. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from John Maxwell. The pessimist complains about the wind. The optimist expects it to change. The leader adjusts the sails. My guest today, Liz Wiseman, coaches both up-and-coming performers and established leaders on how to help others improve. She is CEO of the Wiseman Group, a leadership research and development firm with clients such as Apple, Disney, Facebook, and Google. She's a frequent guest lecturer at BYU and Stanford and has been recognized previously by Thinkers 50 as the top leadership thinker in the world. She is also the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including Multipliers and her newest book, Impact Players. Liz, welcome back to the Elevate podcast. Well, it's good to talk to you. So we we dug a little bit into your background in our first episode. Uh, That's episode 102 back in 2020. I encourage everyone to listen to that uh, who hasn't already. I think when we first started talking, it was early in the pandemic. So I've for folks coming back, I, I'd love to start sort of at that place. Like what, what's the biggest leadership lesson that you've learned or what's really kind of changed for you or how you coach people now two and a half years <laughs> later into this global pandemic? Well, one of the things I've learned is that one's accidental diminishing tendencies tend to change in a crisis like that. Um, you know, I suddenly became sort of this very protective leader. You know, people are like, hey, I'm dealing with a lot of hard stuff at home, hard stuff at work. I'm like, don't worry, I'll do that. I'll take that. Like, and I started absorbing everyone's difficult work. And, you know, I saw the like how my team started to fall apart in this because now I'm overburdened and bitter. And, you know, everyone else is, you know, disengaged because they're under contributing in some ways. Um, so I think our weaknesses our vulnerabilities as leaders, like they show up differently when there's a radical change in the environment like this. And it's a really good time for us to step back and say, okay, what could be going wrong now? Um, What was the term you used again? Automatic? What was it? Accidental diminishers. Accidental diminishing tendencies, you said, right? Yeah, I did. And, And that's kind of this idea that, um, and I've studied leaders who've had this multiplying effect on others, the kind of leaders around whom we're at our best. And then these leaders that have a diminishing effect on others, you know, they're micromanagers, tyrannical, narcissistic, bully kind of bosses. But what I found is that most of the diminishing is actually coming from, you know, kind of the good guys, like the really well-intended leaders who are trying to do the right thing. But you made an interesting point. When the situation changes, that's a time to reevaluate what you do and how it works. And it, it sounds like a lot of people don't take the time to do that. Yeah. It's like someone asked me um, just a couple of days ago, they're like, what's the most important trait, you know, for leaders? I'm like, self-awareness, self-awareness, self-awareness. It's like knowing 
how your best intentions go awry is probably right. the most important thing you can understand as a leader. Like the things that you mean to have happen, like get translated differently by other people. So like understanding kind of like what happens in your own personal wake yeah. is really important to understand. But when the situation changes, like this is what I learned is like, oh, what's in your wake can be different and you can end up causing a whole reverberation, causing people to shut down in new ways. And you've got to figure out what those are. Like there's going to be new problems. You just made me think of a question. I think a complicated situation now, because obviously we, a lot of us hear the mantra, right? It's not, it's not what you say, or it's not what your intentions, it's how it landed or how you did it. Right. There's also this narrative these days and, and people kind of getting upset about the notion of whatever anyone feels is true, right? Even if there wasn't an intention. So that seems like it'd be pretty hard for leaders. Like I once said, if I make a speech and I miss 50% of the room, you know, my company or otherwise, like I pretty much know that I did something wrong. I need to fix that. But if I landed for 98% of the people, but five really all took really bad different interpretations out of it because of stuff that's going on for them how do i know whether i need to change my approach or that just like or batting 100 is just not well, <laughs> it's not likely anymore well you know it's funny um my most recent research project was looking at what makes some people so influential and impactful and one of the things that we find is common is that they have very high degrees of perspective taking like this ability to look at what reality looks like from somebody else's point of view. And I do think this is one of the master leadership skills, which is like, okay, here's what I meant to say, but like, what did that person hear? And what did this person hear? Um, here's what I see in this situation, but what does this situation look like to those above us? Is that before or is that after? Like, do they realize in the moment that they need to go back and correct or they they walk through that analysis before they make decisions and communicate? I think it it mostly shows up beforehand. So it's not about like recovery, like disaster recovery, like, oh man, I just really bungled that meeting. I said all the wrong things. I was misinterpreted. Let me go and do some disaster control yeah. on that. It's it's not that. It's going into a situation that is fraught with ambiguity and uncertainty and chaos and saying, okay, here's what I see. But what do other people see in that? And it's developing this rich perspective, like, well, okay, I may sit in this chair, but Robert sits in that chair. What does he see from his angle on this situation? What does he think about that? What's his experience with that? What does he feel in there? And like, what, what does he need out of this situation? And like, maybe what is he needing that he's not getting? And this kind of logic, this deep perspective taking is what I think like people who navigate uncertainty do this really well because uncertainty is like kind of by definition, everyone's going to see something different because there is no really clear shared picture. So they see the situation in the world through the eyes of the people that they are, they are leading. Which is exhausting. Like I can yeah. imagine that, that that just sounds, I maybe I just saw that in your face, which is like, oh, great. No, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking through it. Yeah. It's hard, right? It's almost like a computer running a lot of scenario planning. That's sort of how (laughs) the analogy I'm thinking about in my head. Yeah. And I don't think it's about like going and having to like live deeply in other people's experience. It's just, it's about having enough sense of curiosity about like, I wonder what somebody else sees. Yeah. Like, how do they see this problem? How do they see the problem? And it's not that we have to stay permanently in the space of like constantly wondering what's going on in everyone else's minds. It's just getting a, a rich enough picture that, you know, okay, I I can see where everyone else is coming from. I can find some overlap in that. Like, okay, what is Robert's experience with this? And what does a win look like for him? Well, yeah. what's Sunir's? take on this and what does he need out of this and when you can see enough of that that a common picture forms like i don't know it's yeah. the center of that venn diagram then you're like now i know what i need to do i, I think this is a way this that you simplify the world not complexify the world i i, I only love to understand your reaction 
this won't come out for a little bit, we're, but we're in the first week of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. And it just, as, as you're saying all of this stuff, it's just like, the, the, I mean, as it's absolute, seems like chaos, you know, so far, just, well, just the chaos. opposite of almost everything you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, I think he he's a leader. And this is one of the things that fascinates me is about these leaders who end up creating something amazing and they take a very singular approach to the world. And I think Elon Musk is an example of or that. that. Or it takes a large toll, right, on the people they work with, even though the contribution was significant. Well, and okay, so this is a whole nother conversation, but I'm fascinated by people who make amazing things, yet everyone hates working for them. Steve Jobs had an element of that, right? You know, Steve did, but there was something different about Steve. Um, and I interviewed a lot of people who had worked for Steve, actually, for for um, my first book and piece of work. And they would say, like, oh, yeah, Steve was like, not not actually a nice guy, not not easy to be around. But I did my best work under him, right? But they would all say that. They're like, Steve had this way of, like, bringing out my best work. And, you know, Steve would say his genius was turning B players into A players. I think his orientation is how do I get people to do amazing things? And I've talked with, oh, a good half dozen people who have worked directly for Elon Musk. And they don't, I don't think they would say that. I, they would say, how do I get away from this? Chaos. Yeah. I, I was talking with Alan Mulally on this and, you know, he was talking about, and, and there are a few companies, whether it's, you know, SpaceX or Boeing or where he's like, look, people want to put this airplane in the sky and they would kind of like kind of go through anything to do that. Or people want to put a rocket on the moon or they want to do something that hasn't been done before. I think they're willing to tolerate a lot in those situations because it's like, it's like being part of the future. It, those are all the situations he's found himself in previously. This is like a turnaround. <laughs> and so the the playbook seems to not be going as as smoothly i i heard i was listening to a podcast um two tech uh, pundits talking about the situation and they said that this is typical of a company like twitter to at some point their founder mentality expires and they need professional leadership to come in and rethink things challenge things and i thought well yeah that is true but elon musk is the most founder-esque kind of founder leader right of the whole lot out there. He is the one that thinks the most like the founder. So it's interesting that we've got someone with this. Not the operator. Yeah. Founder, like against the odds, which is what created SpaceX, which was what's created Tesla. We might find that that kind of founder singular mentality is not what is needed here, but I'm, I'm curious to watch. Like, I wonder what is he going to do with a company that has been struggling and stumbling? Everyone's watching daily. All I know is since he's taken over, I see his tweets always in the first position on my Twitter all day. So that is one thing I've noticed in the last week. It's shocking. <laughs> Seems like the algorithm is uh, is helping him out. So, you know, we, we're talking about leadership. I, you know, your, your most prominent book, Multipliers, is really dedicated to leaders. I know you've kind of you do a lot of research, uh, a lot of interviews. You flip the script this time. Impact players is focusing more on employees, especially early career employees, which I think is be helpful to a lot of people. What led that to you to focus on that this time and sort of flip to the other side? I guess these are the these are the future leaders. Well, I, I think what flipped it was warranty calls. I call these warranty calls where someone like read your book or hears you give a talk or listen to podcasts and they're like, I went out and did those things and it didn't work. So what's going warranty on? Warranty call. <laughs> yeah. And then there was one very particular moment. I'm up at Salesforce and I'm doing this workshop on multiplier leadership. And kind of midway through it, this one engineering manager raises his hand. I could tell he's got a something to say. It's like, hey, I want to be a multiplier leader. I want to be a leader who like uses my intelligence to bring out the intelligence of others and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, but you can't multiply zero. Mm. And Robert, I cannot tell you like what was happening inside of my body when he says this, because I'm like turning kind of hot and red because I'm about to give this guy this speech about, hey, you know what? Because I'm thinking he's saying I got a bunch of zeros on my team. Right. 
And so I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, okay, not everyone is a genius, but everyone has genius. And like everyone brings capability to the team with the right kind of leadership that can be like seen and used and grown. And I'm about to give him that spiel, really. And then I realize he's talking about something entirely different. He's like, yeah, I get it. As a leader, I need to show up with the right mindsets, the right practices to get the best thinking and the best capability for my team. He said, but so do the people who work for me. I'm like, oh, he's not talking about capability. He's talking about mindset. He's talking about the attitude that we bring. Right, right, like good followership, like, right. He's talking about good followership. And, you know, it turns out good followership looks like good leadership. Or or leadership in training, I I would think, right? (laughs) Actually, it's leadership, like kind of the nut of what I found when, so that really put me on this path, exploring like, what what makes some people so much more influential and impactful than others, and particularly in a room full of equally smart, capable, talented people? When, when they're not on top of the power dynamic, when you're saying when they're in an equal situation, they're not the leader. They're not the leader. And you remove how smart they are. You remove how talented and how hardworking they are. And you neutralize those variables. And you really just look at the way that they work. Like, why do some people get stuck going through the motions while other people are making this huge impact? So I'm looking at the art of contributorship, like how how we show up and how we approach our work. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash elevate. Rules and restrictions may apply. So what is an impact player? What is the definition of an impact player you came away with? (laughs) Well, I I mean, the metaphor is one I borrowed from sports. It's about these really standout contributors who all make entire teams better. But here's, here's the essence of what we found is number one, And so we compared the impact players to what I called ordinary contributors, like people who are doing a great job versus people who are hugely impactful. And what we found is that the ordinary contributor, they do their job well, they follow direction, they take ownership, they are focused, they carry their weight on teams, and they're, they're stellar in ordinary times. But once the situations get complex and Like for, say, a global pandemic? Exactly. Like when when it's like that VUCA environment, this is where that 
way of contributing, which is like, hey, I do my job. I take ownership for things like that starts to fall apart. So the situations where the impact players excel are situations where there are messy problems and unclear roles and unforeseen obstacles and moving targets and unrelenting demands where basically it's messy. Nonlinear. Yeah. And and what we find in these situations is where ordinary contributors and again, rock solid contributors, like they do their job, but the impact players are doing the job that needs to be done. Now, let me ask you during smooth sailing, do the rock solid people, are they equal to the impact players? Are they better than the impact players? Does it flip or, or is it just like, I'm interested in that dynamic. Well, again, I don't think it flips because I don't think like the impact players are like, gee, I don't know what to do when times are stable. Like I, I think that way of working shows up and just their gift isn't as valued. Right. Yeah. They, they just distinguish- great in a crisis and there's no crises, then you might be underutilized a little bit. Right. Well, and I mean, let me go on record, like messy problems, unclear roles, you know, moving targets. I don't like any of that. Yeah. Like it's not like, gee, I love this. It's we find that the impact players aren't afraid of it, which is, I think, different than loving it and even thriving in it. It's that they're willing to go out into this space where things are undefined. And, you know, what we find is like, again, you know, one does their job versus the impact players do the job that needs to be done. The ordinary contributors are like waiting for role clarification while the impact players are like, "Uh, I'll lead that. I'll take that. I mean, this is, we saw that, I mean, March, April, 2020, you just saw, you could have taken 400 company A and company B. I I talk about restaurants, you know, all the time. Restaurant A paralyzed, like, we need to go back to the business that we do. Otherwise, restaurant B is on the phone to all the delivery services, signing up for all of them, getting the open table or toast thing installed, figuring out how to open, like, there's no playbook for this. It's just, they understand that this is what needs to be done. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Robert, what you just said is exactly the case is these are the situations where there is no playbook, which means you can't sit back and wait for your boss to tell you what to do to say, Oh, you know what? You're in charge of this initiative or, Oh, Hey, here's how I need you to shift direction. Or what we find is that the impact players are the people who are kind of wrestling down these situations. And in essence, they're self-managing. They're people who are rangy. They're people who are like, you know what? That's not my job. Rangy, that's like- a good word. I, <laughs> I haven't heard that. I, but are they, when you typically don't have a playbook, typically people are guided by values, like company values to know, hey, this is the sandbox I'm supposed to play in, but I'm not being given the instructions of that playbook. I assume that would help the environment for them too. Well, it's it's a little bit what I attempted to do with this book is to say, you know what, here's a playbook. Here's what the most influential people do in the messy situations. And here's what you can do. But, you know, the truth be told, and like, there's some useful stuff in that book, but like, you can skip the book. And really, what I find is that like, leaders, if you want people on your team to work this way, to like, do the job that's needed to step up to lead to get hard things across the finish line, things beyond their control to, you know, pivot and adjust and, and to make work light for other people, which are the five things we find that the impact players do. Can you say most, that again slowly? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to make sure we didn't miss that. Okay, so let me, yeah. let me try to do it slowly. Uh, so when there's messy problems, the ordinary yeah. contributor yeah. does their job. The impact player does the job that needs to be done. Yeah. When the roles are unclear, ordinary contributors are waiting for direction, waiting for someone to appoint them. The impact players step up and lead, but they're also quick to step back. They follow as well as they lead. The third is what do they do when like something big drops in their path that's out of their control, like a pandemic. The ordinary contributor, they take ownership, but then they escalate issues up to higher ups. Like, hey, you know, big boss, like here's this problem. Whereas the impact players just get it across the finish line. So like rather than hand it to a higher up, they get the higher ups working for them. Mm-hmm. The fourth is how they handle moving targets. Um, the ordinary contributors tends to stick to what they know, and the impact player 
is asking for guidance, asking the questions and adjusting their aim as the world is changing. They're adapters. And the last is how they deal with like unrelenting demands, where it's just where the workload is increasing faster than the resources. We find the ordinary contributors, they carry their weight, but they can be difficult to work with in those situations. And they add to the burden to their managers and colleagues, whereas the impact players, they just make work light. And it's not that they do other people's work for them. It's that they're easy to work with. They're I, as it's funny as you say, as you say that, I can I can picture people over my career who the opposite, who just made work heavy, who made things hard, right? <laughs> like so, you just know what it looks like. People who make it make it light or make it hard. Yeah, they're talented, but they come with a tax. Like, oh, this two minute conversation is going to be two hours. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was. It's actually was one of my favorite things to see, which is just that they. They're easy to work with. And they, these impact players, they kind of just bring a sense of lightness that makes hard work feel a lot easier. And a lot of it is they just don't participate in the phantom workload. They just use all their energy on the real work. Yeah. So anyone listening, I think it's two groups of people listening to this, right? There are people who are like, all right, how do I find these people for my team? I want them. And then there's people, how do I be that person? So let's deal, let's deal with the first group yeah. first. Are these people, I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but are they born or made? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think we're all shaped by our environment. Um, You know, some of these impact players were people who, I don't know that they like dropped into earth thinking this way, but they probably had early life experiences, early career experiences that said, you know what? Go for it. Free range. They were free range. Free range. Yeah. Like they were raised like free range in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I was, I have to admit, I was kind of raised this way in the workplace. I joined Oracle when, you know, they're doubling every year in size. And it was like, hey, if you see a problem, just go solve a problem. Like right, right. Roll with necessity it. took me this way. Some of them may have had early life experiences that said, you know what, go for it. You know, if you think you can do this, like raise your hand, speak up, take charge. Like if nobody's stopping you, go for it. But a lot of it is very much influenced by the the kind of leadership we receive, the organizational culture. Like, does it permit ranginess? It's my new favorite word, ranginess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's range this way, which is like, okay, I know this isn't my job, but it's something that needs to be done. So I'm going to like treat my job description as a suggestion rather than a boundary. Yeah. But it's also rangy this way, which is, okay, yeah, I'm not in charge, but we have a situation or like an ambient problem, one that's just in the air, and it needs somebody to take charge. Someone needs to take charge of this conversation or this decision. And like an absence of someone telling me I shouldn't lead that well, why not? So I'm 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 reacting when I know I think some people are thinking, just because of discussions I have, that there's particularly with Gen Z, there's some counterforce to this. I think I I don't think it was a very free rangey, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, raised generation. And I, I've been told in feedback and stuff that they really a lot of them again. I'm, these are gross generalizations, so please asterisk like specificity and like to be clear about things. In fact, we have a an unlimited vacation policy and some of the feedback we got that, that was really clear for the Gen Xers, but the Gen Zers really want to understand what did that mean? <laughs> like, like, could it be two? Could it be four? Could it be one? Like it was really stressing them out without more guidelines around it. So h- how do those two forces intersect? Mm. Well, you know, the kind of leadership people need to, to really be impact players or to have a lot of influence. It's not hippie management. It's not, hey, knock yourself out, do whatever you want. Like, you know, <laughs> if you see something, say something, do something. It's it's not that kind of leadership. It's about what people need specificity for. And really, if I could pick one thing, and maybe this is a gross generalization of it, but like if there's one thing for leaders to get really, really good at, it's like let people know what's important and what's important right now. Hmm. So it's not like, hey, you know what, find a place to contribute in this organization and do something valuable and make a difference. 
Right. So this is where having top three goals, not 20 organizational priorities would, would help. If if people are really clear about the most, an organization that where everything is important, it would be impossible to be successful under this mantra versus an organization that, look, these are our top three things for the quarter and the year, and I'm, everyone understands them. And then people can understand that they have some room to navigate, but they understand the goal at least. Well, yes. And so that's a start. But a lot of organizations have here's our annual priorities, quarterly priorities. And it's still, they often have 10. To and be they fair. have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but we all know that like that bread is stale. Yeah. And then you see like what's actually happening, like where there's heat in an organization. And it tends to be different. Like the term I use, um, the acronym just kind of works out to the win. It's like what's important now. Yeah. And it's not like, oh, here's a fire, so we're not running urgent to urgent thing. It's, yeah, here's what's important, and here's what's important right now. Like, this week, this is the problem we have to solve. Like, this month, this is a thing to get done. And so it's letting people know that here's a hot spot in the organization. So, like, here's where to where to channel yourself. Yeah. You know, if I had to kind of pick a metaphor for the impact players, like how they work and... Heat-seeking missile, right? You took the words right out of my mouth. They are. (laughs) No, they're heat seeking. They're looking. You use the word heat a lot. So, you know, I just, you you, you saw it coming. Yeah, I saw it coming. But okay. So, like, back to your point of like people listening who are like, how do I increase my impact? How do I do work that matters? It's look for hot spots. Like, um, great advice. Yeah. Like, hot issues, hot buttons. Like, what are, what's your manager constantly worked up about? What do they talk about? Like, what do they talk about when they're ranting? Um, my daughter had one this way. She's like, mom, I noticed that my boss was always saying like, man, I would like, it seems like we should be able to figure this out because it wasn't my job. But I noticed. That's a like, good clue to that, yeah. She's like, my boss was agitated about this. And it wasn't agitated like something was wrong. It was just, why can't we figure out how to incorporate VR technology into this process. And so my daughter's like, oh, that's a hot spot. That's a hot button for her. And so it wasn't her job. She just then went out and did this. And and then she kind of went back and told her boss she had figured out this thing. How do you So they VR also guy. don't ask for permission, I'm guessing, in these things, right? You figure out the hot spot and then you go working on it. Assuming it doesn't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to work on it. Yeah. Because you don't need permission. Yeah. Like if you're working on something that you know is a hot issue, hot project, um, hot spot, a hot button for someone, like you're working essentially with an implied permission. Yeah. And it was interesting in this case with my daughter. She's like, yeah, I went back and like mentioned to my boss that I did this. And, and, you know, her boss was like, what? Like, Thank you. That's amazing. It's absolutely like, like, oh, how did you know? You know, like, and it was one of those. I read my mom's book. (laughs) Well, there was just a little bit of that in it as well, which made me feel good. But, you know, she's new to the workplace. Right. Hi, everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard Business Review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content. Widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information, Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcasts. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to. Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www dot hbr dot org slash subscriptions and enter promo code elevate to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business with everyone fighting for attention these days how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers it's easy get constant contact 
Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Adaptability is also got to be a big part of this, right? I, I think people that have developed adaptability and I mean, that's been the name of the game the last three years. It's been like supply shock, demand shock, supply shock, demand shock. You know, I, you, you know, you read the thing every day now and every company is the same release. Look, we scaled up like this was going to go on forever. It's not. We're adjusting. And people can either be all upset about that or they can understand that pretty much everyone is in the same new reality and you're not going to find a different reality, you know, somewhere else. Well, and it's it's how we stay relevant. Like, okay, yeah. that wasn't my plan. That wasn't my job. That wasn't what I started with. But if that's what's important, how do I like just pivot myself towards it? In some ways, the impact players are doing inside their organizations and teams exactly what the best startups are doing, which is you kind of start with one aim or ambition. And then when you fit, you get market feedback, like, oh, well, that's not how we thought people would use the feature. Okay. Yeah. But that's where there's heat and usage and need. Like, let me pivot and go there. So, you know, being an impact player, it requires an element of going above and beyond, looking what's needed. You got a lot of burnout today, <laughs> a lot of exhaustion too. Uh, people are barely, you know, can get through their their day job. What's the, and, and you know, the employer-employee dynamic is, has been a little adversarial. So how do leaders navigate people to become impact players in that environment and with the overhang of burnout. And and again, someone who's feeling that, how do they get that mindset too? Well, I think it's, you've got to understand like what's causing burnout. Yeah. Our knee jerk reaction is burnout is a result of, of too much work. And, you know, we're talking about this quiet quitting in the context of people are saying no to hustle culture, Right. And so it's easy to say, okay, people are quiet quitting because they have too much. So let's like back off. Let's give people less. But there's a couple of things I've learned from my research that I want to share on this. Um, when we ask people what it's like when you're working hard, but fully utilized, making an impact, doing work that matters, like where you're using like every IQ point you've got and like begging for more, you know, like praying for yeah. like... I just need a couple more points to solve this, this problem. Like when people are working fully engaged, they describe that experience as a little bit tiring, but totally exhilarating. And we hear that across so many cultures, across industries, like they describe that experience as exhilarating. But when you ask people, what's it like when you're working hard, like maybe even overworked, but yet at the same time, you're underutilized, meaning you're coming into work with knowing you have more capability and insight and intelligence than the job requires. Right. It's the wrong things, not the, not necessarily the volume. Yes. Or like you're doing work that isn't going anywhere. Yeah. So like when you're actually kind of contributing at a minimal level, people universally describe this experience as this combination, frustrating, demoralizing, uh, tiring, draining, exhausting. So I think this is like worth a bit of a pause as we we say, wait a minute, burnout may not come because we're working too hard. We're being asked to hustle and contribute too much. What I see is that burnout tends to come because we lack impact, like we're under engaged. Yeah. And, you know, if I've learned anything studying some of the best leaders, the worst leaders is that people come to work actually wanting to contribute. Right. Or you're doing a lot unengaged versus doing 
a lot engaged. I mean, we all know the feeling of being in flow, right? And when you're in flow, it, the time work, it almost seems irrelevant. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, like <laughs> like I'm like the cat, you know, on the keyboard. It's like you're cranking things out, but yet it's sort of exciting versus like the slog, the turning of the crank is what creates burnout. And so, you know, if you're a leader and you've got people who you think are quiet quitting, like. <laughs> How do you know I was going to ask you about that? I'm guessing <laughs> a lot of impact players are not quiet quitting. Well, in some ways, um, someone said impact players are the antithesis to right, quiet right. quitting. And, and maybe I think it's the antidote to it, but there's could be a lot of reasons why people are quiet quitting. One is maybe they have been asked to subscribe to a hustle culture that is dysfunctional. Okay. Maybe it has been just too much work, too much weekend, too much night. There's the, the bleed that happens when we're working from home. So, okay. Maybe how do you contain that um, and give people more like impact in their their work week. Two, it's it might be that people are turning cranks, but they're not doing the most impactful work, or they're not seeing how their work has impact. Um, one of the things I worry a lot about is how working remotely and, of course, working in hybrid environments sort of um, dissolves chains of impact. Like we used to see when we worked together, like, hey, I did an analysis, I gave it to you, and you come stop by my desk, and you're like, hey, Liz, you know that analysis you did? And we used it in this meeting yesterday. It helped us make this decision about canceling this product line, like at a girl, you know? Right. That'll get you going for another, you know, few weeks. That's really interesting. If you don't, if someone goes out of their way and you don't close the positive feedback loop, then again, why, why would they want to do that? We are missing the, the attaboys, girls, the like, and it's the small things that you wouldn't necessarily like start an email note or call someone. It's just the like, oh, by the way, that thing you did, that was great. Here's how we used it. Like one of the things that managers can do is to help people increase their impact by helping them know what's important now, getting them focused on the job that needs to be done rather than job. But an easy thing managers can do is help restore that, those chains of causality. Like you did a piece of work. It got used here. This good thing happened. Like there is a cycle of success happening. Um, that is a, a remedy for quiet quitting. And, you know, if you've got people who are. By the way, can we all agree that this is a term that <laughs> no one knows where it came from? Some people think it's an employee term. Some people think it's a pejorative thing that employers are using. I've never seen so much discussion about a made up by the media term. And I don't use that. <laughs> I don't use the media thing that often, but I think it's just so funny that everyone spent time on this. I, I said something one day, I just, I don't know whether I poked it on LinkedIn or Twitter. I was like, instead of talking about quiet quitting all day, we could probably go just do something that we want to do that's more engaging professionally or personally. But I guess I agree and I disagree. Like, I don't love the term, but in some ways, this dynamic is what I've been studying for the last It's disengagement, years. right? I mean, that, yeah. Which is kind of gets me to this third point, which is, you know, some of what that reaction is, is reaction to managers who, in people's mind, don't deserve a bigger contribution. Right. And and so managers, you might want to look in the mirror. You know, a lot of people say to me like, hey, I, I want these impact players on my team. How do I get them? I'm like, well, okay, there's some strategies for hiring them, for identifying them, for developing them. But first, like fundamentally, you want impact players on your team, you've got to be the kind of manager that deserves impact players. You you know, you have to create the conditions under which people can be ranging. Right. And it seems like they're right there. I'm, I'm thinking of someone who had a boss who just exhausted him, but, but it would seem like if everyone thinks they're just doing it for you and because you want it done versus it's a really important thing for the team, for the company, or just like my boss wants this done. Like, I don't even see how it contributes to anything important that we do. There's a real difference in mindset around that. Yeah. Yeah. It's leading from, hey, here's what I need from you versus here's what you can do to have the greatest impact in right. your work. And the manager plays a pretty strong role in saying, here is what is impactful. Here's what matters. Here's what matters now. But, you know, we've got to be the kind of leaders who create mm, 
both the safety and the stretch that's needed to work yeah. this way. So I'm still going to go into the premise that it's better to, to buy than build. So if I'm interviewing internally or externally, what are some things that I am going to want to look for in an impact player? Mm. Well, um, I always like to throw a little bonus piece of research onto any research yeah. project. And one <laughs> of them was, you know, so what we did is kind of decoded, here's the impact player mindset, the the mental game and the practices that lead to high impact and, you know, there's a bunch of behaviors. We've talked about a few of them um, and some mindsets behind that. I'm like, mm, I wonder which one of these are hard to learn. Like, because what we really want to do is figure out the ones that are easy to learn. You know, then you can coach for those. But then the ones that are really hard to change and hard to learn, you want to hire for. And uh, that's a good distinction. It's like talent versus skill, right? Yeah. So the kinds of things that you want to hire for are people with a very strong internal locus of control. Like people who kind of move through life, like I can affect this situation. In some ways, you want to hire not for controlling people, but for people who are willing to take control. So the person who sits down in your at your desk for the interview and takes charge of the interview, probably someone who has a very strong internal locus control. You, So that's hard to change. Another thing that's hard to change is someone's orientation to hierarchy. That tends to be pretty culturally imprinted in us, either based on our sort of national culture we grow up in, or yeah. I don't know, maybe our early job descriptions where someone says like, oh, no, you don't talk to that person. You you talk to people laterally. but So you want someone who's got a healthy level of disrespect for hierarchy. Okay. A little bit of the take charge rebels. Other things, one of the things we found that was... um coaches said was hard to coach. And one of the groups that we asked were the Marshall Goldsmith 100 coaches. And Robert, I know you are a member of that, as am I. Um, sense of humor. Southwest Airlines does that too. Yeah. Can't teach humor. Can teach people to serve on, on an airplane. You can't teach humor. And, you know, uh, humor is, is really big on my list. I It ends up coming up in every research project I do. You know, when I did the study of multiplying versus diminishing leaders, I had like 66 items on the survey. And at the last minute, I threw on sense of humor because I wanted to see how that played out. And um, turns out sense of humor is the thing that is most negatively correlated with diminishing leaders, meaning diminishers don't have a sense of humor. Does a sense of humor tie to humility at all? I totally think it is. Because having a sense of humor isn't about being a comedian. It's about being able to laugh at life's foibles, like being able to laugh at yourself. And, you know, we know the kind of bosses that can't laugh at themselves versus the ones that are like, okay, wait a minute. That's not what I meant. Okay, that didn't go so right. well. Whoops, my bad. We like love. Like the ability to make light of things, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we find that this is one of the big five things with impact players is they make work light. And part of that is they don't take themselves too seriously. They they can laugh off something that doesn't go right. They just bring a lightness about them. I actually had a whole conversation with someone about this today, which will become a Friday forward. But um, emotional regulation. We were talking about how the ideal person or on the team is not someone who is unemotional. Right, but they know how to bring and show their emotions on the at the right times, and that the people who use them all the time, it's exhausting and it's hard to trust them because you don't know what you're getting. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know it's interesting because I don't know that I looked at that precisely. Like, how does emotional regulation? plays in, but you're right. People who don't do it are absolutely exhausting to work with. And, you know, emotional regulation back to where we started, like it's the, I don't know, it's kryptonite to like perspective taking it. Like when you can't regulate your emotions, it's hard to see what a situation looks like through somebody else's perspective. And if you can't see what it looks like through the perspective of those you serve, whether it's your clients, your leaders, your stakeholders, like you can't figure out what's valuable. Yeah. And that's inside. I think a lot of people I've seen, I say they like, they don't have a firewall. Like, well, again, things that happen outside of work are certainly going to impact inside of work, particularly if you have something big going on. It's just like their bad morning it then carries into the whole work day of being frenetic or otherwise. Like they just, they, you need to have some 
you know, separation there, understanding that we're all human and, and that we're the same across that. But, you know, if I can tell that you're being uh, disagreeable in meeting because your drop-off didn't go well in the morning, like, and I, that, that's a pattern all the time, <laughs> then it's going to become frustrating. Absolutely. And it's definitely something I've noticed in the best executives have this ability, have this firewall, this ability to walk into a room and sit down with someone. And that person is the only person in their world in that moment. And they can put the shareholder lawsuit behind the fact that like a key, like hire just didn't come through. And I remember having that experience. um, The first time I met one-on-one with Tim Cook, I was doing some work for him and his organization at Apple. And I was interviewing him for part of that. And I went and honestly, I didn't know Tim that well, but I thought, oh, this guy's probably a jerk. (laughs) You know, I just like, and I went to sit down and meet with him. And it was like this presence and this regulation of like shutting out all of the stress that I'm sure he was under and just being totally focused on that conversation. And it is something you see with the best executives and I think really high impact contributors. Yeah. And again, not to at the extreme example, say you want people that aren't emotional, or whatever, but I, I, I can tell you sometimes I can think of the people where I've been in some meetings, these incredible meetings where someone's contributing something and they say, you know what, actually, I need to go a little bit early. I'm headed to a funeral, you know, or something like that. And, and I just always was like, how did they remain so, you know, level headed during that? I mean, that is definitely a, something that people develop and is a skill. Again, not, not saying that it's good to, to disconnect those things sometimes. But again, the complete opposite is also is hard. Well, and it has everything to do with where your focus is. One of the things we find that the best leaders do is like essentially they're focused on others rather than on themselves, which sounds so ridiculously simple to say, but so many leaders are like, what's in my head and how do I get what's in my head out into other people's heads? Like yeah. what's my experience with this issue and how do I blast this to my team? Because they're essentially trying to like multiply their own thinking and experience. Whereas the best leaders, people we perform really well around are very much focused on other people. Like, okay, what's that person's experience in this room, which to do that, you have to regulate yourself. Like, okay, I can't blast out every worry that I'm experiencing. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so I'm going to ask you to to choose between your children here as the last question. What what's your favorite example? Joshua. Uh, <laughs> uh, the other one's going into therapy. Um, what's your favorite example of an impact player that you spotlighted in the book? You know, probably my favorite example that I spotlighted the book was is not the one that came up in our interview. I was just I read about him in Emergency Room Monthly, which why I read this that's, journal. That's that's a whole separate question that we could go down. That you'll come back and we'll talk about that. I feel like everyone should read this story. It's about the power of like normalizing problems and anticipating problems. And this is Dr. Kevin Menace at the Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas, who was the attending physician in the emergency room back in um, October of 2017, when the largest mass casualty incident happened on the strip at the Mandalay Bay. And, you know, this is... Oh, there was like 670 something injuries, 422 gunshot wounds. Um, the minor injuries were taken to other hospitals and 250 of these, you know, major gunshot wound patients got taken to Sunrise Hospital, you know, which was just 
one of the closest hospitals. And Dr. Menace was the physician on, on duty. And what was so powerful about this story, we probably don't have time for me to share all of these details, but he had been thinking about this situation for a long time, which sounds kind of macabre, but he had been a tactical physician working with um, the Las Vegas um, tactical um, police force. And, and he had thought like, we're an easy target here in Las Vegas. Like something, something really bad could happen here. And what would happen? And what would we do? Like, what would happen if I were on duty? And, you know, more than a dozen gunshot wound patients arrived. So they had 250. He had been thinking about this problem for a long time. And so when they arrived, he's like, oh, now, like it was his moment to lead. Yeah. You know, and he's up there with triage and he's like, you know, we can't process 422 gunshot wounds. And the normal procedure is like to tag patients. Okay, this is a, this is code red. This is someone who's about to expire. This is like code green and yellow. He's like, we don't have time for that. And they tagged rooms instead. Here's the red room. Let's move all the critically wounded patients in there so that we can get the right equipment, the right physicians on this. And he went through dozens of situations like this where it looked like he just somehow miraculously knew what to do, but all of it he had been thinking about. And and I love this story for two reasons. One is I think it it teaches us the importance of like normalizing problems. Like when you are in uncertain, chaotic environments, there are going to be problems. You know, the problem is when you think otherwise and you're expecting normalcy. He's like, oh no, my job is to solve these problems. And, you know, the other reason why I love this story is, you know, these 250 people who arrived, they were able like 20, within 24 hours, 215 of them were discharged as outpatients. And, and, you know, they'd done 67 surgeries that night, like literally hundreds of lives. Hey. Right. It's not the time to sit there and get depressed over gun regulation, right? <laughs> it's the time to triage. Yeah. And it's not the time to say, gee, what should I do? And like, in some ways, like the best way to handle like the ambiguity and uncertainty is just not even like you have to rehearse mentally. What will I do if this happens? Right. But it's clear what the most important thing in that situation is right crystal clear yeah and it's it's to just know that you're going to have problems and like in some ways like the most impactful people just define their job is my job is to solve the problems that the environment throws at me that is my job i'm here to solve problems um but i love this i love this example of just like a clear-headed leader and everything that he had done um to kind of like i don't know not, it's not shine in that moment it's not a moment of shining but i mean they did all right well liz where can people find more about you and your work and your books oh goodness i'm easy to find but um the wisemangroup.com is a good place we've got a bunch of links to the various books there i'm pretty easy to find on um twitter at liz wiseman or connect with me um on linkedin you're not looking hard if you can't find you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not an impact player if you're not willing to do the work to find to find Liz on, on the internet and you want to find her stuff. All right, well, Liz, thanks for uh, coming back to join us. We're gonna we'll get you on next time to talk about emergency room uh, monthly and some of the other the other periodicals that that you read. I, I have My to hear the time. story about how you started reading that. Oh. Um, Eileen was having a, a surgeon living with us during his residency. Got me really interested in um, trauma and emergency room surgery but uh and i spent some time down at stanford hospital doing some teaching um down there but great talking to you thanks for the impact that you have um on the work you do to help leaders navigate through a lot of complexity right now there's we as we were talking before the show there's a lot there's a lot of complexity right now so i think everyone needs all the help uh they can get so thanks for your insight today well, you can learn more about Liz and Impact Players on the episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. Hello, Elevate Podcast listeners. 
I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. Here's why I love Darius and The Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and tiny habits expert and author BJ Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions, and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.